why don't you open up your Bibles if uh, you don't have one. There's some along the, the aisles. And we're going to be continuing on in, in Mark, starting in uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 27. I believe it's page 844 in your pew Bibles. Um, and I really want to encourage you to follow along, uh, believing that the Word of God is a powerful tool uh, it, it is God's narrative, God's story, and we find our story in the midst of all this. Um, and like I told you earlier, I probably about two months ago, I told Andy, I said, as part of your elder development, part of your training, I want you to be preparing a message on this. And this was a hard one for me to give up because this is kind of the, um, in the story of Mark, the gospel of Mark, this is the turning point. This is the point where... Um, Jesus had been walking with his disciples. We've seen amazing miracles, great dialogue. Jesus has been kind of going at it with the religious institution of the day. And in this section, everything seems to turn. At chapter 8, there is a race to the cross with Peter answering a question. But I want you to, before we jump into the text, I want you to think, if if you had the superhuman power, the superhuman strength of being able to know what people really think, would you really want it? As a pastor, I'm pretty sure I would not want to know. You know, as, as I look out, some of you are like, you know, fighting, staying awake, or some of you... Also, I see the look on. I'm not sure that I would want to know what do people really think as you're having a conversation. You know, body language also changes, and it's like, do I really want to know? You know, I look at your posture, and it's like, oh, I'm looking at Kelly. Kelly looks like she's engaged. If you guys could just, you know, but really, do I want to know what's going on in her head? You know, or have you ever? thought about putting out on Facebook in your status, what do you really think about me? And if people would really be honest, do you, would, would you want to know those answers? What do people really think about you? I'm, I'm not sure that I would want to know. I'm not sure that I'd really want to know what Brad thinks about me. Like if he'd strip away everything and just give me the raw answer? Maybe I do. I don't know. That, that is true. That is true. But that's a scary thing, isn't it? With the true, honest, raw kind of thing? No? Here, Brad, you're preaching this morning. Come on up, man. You know, but that I think all of us in our frailty, just when everything's stripped away and people are really honest, I think there's that, that scary piece of, man, this is how I'm perceived, or this is what people really think. And this is where Jesus is in Mark chapter 8. He's walking along. Let's, let's allow the story to speak for itself, starting in verse 27, going through 9 verse 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of, villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, 
John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach him that the son, teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and, he re, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When he called the crowds with his called to him the crowds with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For what Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? And what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. In this study, Jesus' section, we're seeing Jesus walking with these disciples that he has hand chosen. He's picked them out and said, You, come follow me. You leave your nets behind. You come follow me. Very unlikely men for Jesus to be picking. And he says, you come with me. You follow me. You watch the life that I live. You listen to the teaching that I'm teaching. You watch these miracles. And and hopefully through this, you are going to understand what it means to follow. What followership, discipleship looks like. You're going to see the kingdom of God as it's inaugurated just blossom. It's It's like a mustard seed. And it's going to take over the whole garden. Just watch. And so there's Jesus is walking with these disciples in the area of Caesarea Philippi. And really, this is a whole, like I said earlier, it's just a turning point in the gospel. And all the events are starting to point towards the cross. Jesus' eyes are now fixed on Jerusalem and what's going to be taking place in Jerusalem. The betrayal, the whipping post, the bloody cross. His eyes are fixed there. And some of us love this section because it's Peter. You know, he stands up and says, You are the Christ. And we just want to applaud him and say, Atta boy, he gets it. Peter has been walking with Jesus, and he is a strong-willed kind of guy. You know, he's the one that will step out of the boat and say, Jesus, if it's really you, call me out. 
And, you know, he's the guy who take, took that first step out onto the water. He got it. It's like, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, he, you know, he, he lost it and he went down. So, but he, he's done something that others have not done. He, he's, he's getting it. And so we want to applaud him. But even in this text, I'm not sure that he really gets what it means. Even us today, if I'd say, so who is Jesus? Or if we'd go to, we'd go to Orland Mall. I don't know why we'd go to Orland anyway, because it's a zoo. But if we'd go to Orland Mall and we walk around with our notepads and try to be, you know, uh, nondescript as possible and non-invasive as possible, you know, come up and say, hey, can I just ask you a question? Who is Jesus? We would get quite an array of responses. I want, I want you to watch this real short video clip and uh, see what people say about Jesus. Go ahead. Who do you say Jesus was? I have no idea. Who was Jesus? Gosh, I have to start with I'm not sure. Who was Jesus to you? Some guy. Actually, I don't believe in Jesus. Not really sure exactly who Jesus was. I think Jesus was uh, was a was kind of a cool guy back in his day. Who was Jesus to you? I think I'm done. I don't like to talk about it. I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not religious. Who do you think Jesus was or is? Uh, Jesus was a historical figure. I believe that Jesus Christ was a man who had an extraordinary ability to link in with the creator. I think he was uh, definitely someone that people, you know, a good role model. I, I do think he had a lot of great ideas. More or less, he was just a prophet, which is just a messenger of God. Sort of a revolutionary in his day. Jesus was an amazing man. I don't believe he's God's son. I just believe he's a person. As to his, like, God-like quality, I'm not totally sold on that. You think he was a prophet? And I would, see, I'd have to be Christian to really believe that. Jesus was the Messiah for some people, and for some people he wasn't. I'm not necessarily sure if Jesus was the Messiah or a prophet, but in either case, he was somebody that spoke the word of God. He was equal portions of of human and, uh, and that energy that is God. People said he was sent by God. Well, no one, God doesn't send them down. You don't go on up. <laughs> I mean, you... He linked in. I mean, I do believe in Jesus in the sense of, like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. That I'm, I'm not saying that he, he didn't exist or anything of the sort, but the fact that, um, I mean, I necessarily don't go and uh, pray to Jesus. Who was Jesus? Uh, Jesus is the son of God. Jesus was the son of God. I believe Jesus is the son of God who came to save us all from our sins. Jesus was a savior. Who died for our sins and cleaned us, made us pure enough to enter God's glory. The, um only way you can get to heaven. Who do you think Jesus is? Um, who do I think he is? I, I don't think he's who he was. I think he still is Jesus, so he's not gone or anything, you know. I guess embodied technically he is, but he's still here. The Jesus story sort of borders on history and myth for me, um, but I don't believe that it could have permeated our culture so fully and for so long if there was nothing to that. So who is Jesus? 
even in Jesus' day, as he asked his disciples, so who do people say that I am? Just like this guy, who, who do you say I am? And there were a lot of different answers. Well, some say they're giving the report back, you know, they're kind of playing the polling kind of thing. Well, obviously, you're, you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you are this. So Jesus is saying, yeah, well, word out on the street says that I am that. I'm all these things. But as you have spent time to me, and as I have revealed myself to you, here's the question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And it's really a a question of revelation. It's also a question of intimacy. As you are uh, a husband and a wife, husbands know their wives. The real, I know the real lore of your room. Many of you don't know the real lore of your room. Even if you're a workout buddy, you don't know the real lore of room like I know her. As she reveals herself and there's that intimacy. I could tell you stuff about her. This is who she is. Can we say that exact same question? And Jesus says to us today, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter gives this question. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. And in the Gospel of Matthew, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter here was not giving Jesus like a middle name or a last name. He's giving him a title. You are the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah, the one that they have been waiting for. They've been waiting for this one to come. And Peter is saying, you are the one, the anointed one, that anticipated king who had come back, that that prophet, that priest that we've been waiting for. You are the one that we've been waiting for. You are the Christ. Jesus says, yes. You got it. But then he goes a step further. He goes on a step further in Mark where you notice in verse 31. And he began to teach him. This is like immediately. He began to teach them that the son of man, this Christ, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this. Plainly. So Jesus wasn't kind of giving this flowery kind of theological stuff. He's saying, okay, you're right. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And let me tell you a little bit more about what that means. As a Son of the living God, the Christ, the, the much anticipated one, I must suffer and I must die. So these disciples are going, you know, at first they're going, yes, 
He's the one. We knew it. He chose us. We're going to be part of this new realm, this whole, this new kingdom. He's ushering it in. Sweet. Way to go. I'm excited about it. Then all of a sudden he's going, but I'm going to suffer and die. And they're going, you just said that you, you were the one. And Peter, again, comes and says, Jesus, come here, hold on. You, you can't be saying these things. You can't be saying this. You know, because what we're looking for is this new kind of kingdom, this new way of living, this way of that God has been entering into our world and it's going to be this new Israel, this way of life. Then, Jesus, you can't be saying these things. And Jesus goes, hold, hold, hold on a second. Hold on a second. You're right. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. But listen. I must suffer. I must die. And I will rise again. The God that you follow the Christ, the anointed one, must die. He must suffer at the hand of the religious people. He must be rejected. And on top of that, he goes on a little bit further and says to the crowds, if anyone comes after me, and that includes these 12 disciples, if anyone comes after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Because that's what discipleship looks like. It's not just this easy followership. Because I think that here in the American church, what we've done to discipleship is basically say, uh, I'm going to sit down with Jake, and I'm going to disciple Jake, and we're going to walk through this book that we got through the Navigators, and he's going to memorize some scripture, he's going to do some homework, and I'm going to give him a job of maybe starting out having him usher, and then he's going to maybe someday move up to a deacon, and as he gets older and gets more white hair, he's going to become an elder, because only elderly people become elders, you know, and then um, then he's fully discipled. So we have this idea in in American church, American culture, that being a disciple basically means that you do these little things. But Jesus is saying, hold on, let me redefine what discipleship really looks like. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his, um, his book, The Cost of um, Discipleship, said this, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come and die. And that's what we got here in in verse uh, 34. If anyone comes after me, he's got to take up his cross, an instrument of death, an instrument of torture, and he must come follow me. Other Gospels say, daily pick up his cross. So it's a daily putting to death. And that's what discipleship is. It's not just about following Jesus, having these ah moments where you have these warm, fuzzy kind of things. I remember having those at camp and having it at college where it's like, 
oh, kumbaya, this is what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus is saying, oh, no, let me redefine what following me is all about. It is the daily dying to yourself, daily dying to your wants, daily dying to your needs. It's following my pattern. Even your Messiah, your anointed one, the Christ, must suffer and die. And when we, you know, I've heard people talk about, well, that's my cross. Have you ever heard that? I've heard men talk about their wife. Well, you know, that's, that's my cross. I've got to bear. You know, that's my wife. That, you guys, or that's my mother-in-law. That's the cross that I've got to bear. I've got to suck it up and deal with it. Well, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about a, a tough boss at work. He's not talking about a mother-in-law or you losing privileges because you're married to so-and-so. Jesus is saying, no, no, this life of following after me is so much more. It's not that kind of following that I'm talking about. Following after Jesus is taking up our crosses. What does... What does that mean? It's not just simply trials. It's not just hardships. It's not a nutty boss, an unfair teacher, a bossy mother-in-law. They're not our crosses. It's not even an illness or a handicap. A cross comes specifically from walking in Christ's steps and embracing His life. It comes from Bearing um, the scoffing, the, the looks, the questions, because we're embracing the narrow way of Christ. The narrow, as we follow after Jesus, and we're following in His steps, as we walk, walk beside Him, it comes from our picking up the cross is from that kind of lifestyle. Because Jesus is the way and the life. It's following after Him closely. It comes from living out the business and the, the different ethics of Christ in a, in, a, in a marketplace and in the world and in the marriage. It comes from embracing weakness instead of power. It comes from extending oneself Putting yourself out in difficult circumstances for the sake of the gospel. Our crosses come from and are proportionate in our dedication to Christ. Difficulties are not an indication of cross-bearing. Difficulties for Christ's sake are what we do for Christ and for His sake and for the sake of the Gospel. Jesus has a different kind of mentality. We live in a world of looking out for numero uno, looking out for me, looking out for my life and my this and my this and my that and whatever I can gather up for me. And Jesus says, no, no, no. In, in my world, in my economy, in the way that 
it looks like after following after me, he says, losers are the keepers. Those who are willing to lose their life for me, lose my their life, their place of privilege, their place of whatever, for me, are the real keepers. Talk to a missionary about this. Talk to people who have gone down to Chiapas, Mexico, Abaco, different places where they have to say, you know, for the sake of the gospel, I will become less so that God can become more. I'm willing to put my comfort, my personal well-being, my definition of success down so that God may increase and He will receive more glory. I've shared stories of me traveling uh, to Chiapas with uh, Vern and Carla Sturk and hearing their, their stories of a, a newly married couple and moving to Mexico, facing death, near-death experiences. That is not a honeymoon. And most of us would go, that's ridiculous. But for me, as I look at this, I'm going, whoever would save his, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man, a woman, a child to gain the entire world and then forfeit his life? Jesus is saying, listen, I want into that personal private space. I want to disciple the heck out of that. I don't want to just spank that inner child. I want to kick that inner child out. And I want that space. If that's an area of finances, if that's an area of personal relationships, if that's an area of whatever it is, you, you fill in the blank. Jesus said, listen, those who are willing to lose that for my sake are the real winners, are the keepers. Because that is the life of Christ. Confessing Christ means that we're taking up our cross and following Him. It means embracing that strange paradox that losers are keepers. It brings eternal rewards, not temporary rewards, but eternal rewards to our soul. We're called to confess. There is a price to pay for confessing that Jesus is the Christ. And as we as a church wrestle through, what does it mean to love one another? As we wrestle through, what does it mean to covenant together? As we get into house groups and we get into these little missional communities, we've got to ask those same questions of, 
what does it look like for us as we join together? How do we look more like Christ? How do we say, man, how can we, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Jesus, take up our cross daily as a group, as a family, as individuals? How do we do that? Because the price is not cheap. And are we really willing to do that? You know what I hate? Sunday morning Christians. Love you guys. But that's not what Christ is calling for. He's not calling for Sunday morning show up, do your hour and a half at Missio Day. He's calling for a life of followership. A life of picking up the cross. For husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Now think about that. What does that look like? For husbands to love their wife as Christ, in this context, who says that he's going to be crucified, to love their wives in that way and become less. Even in, as we, we talked about Christ's incarnation, where he left his sweet spot of being right there by the Father, and he descended, put on flesh for the sake of redeeming humanity. What does it look like for us as husbands, as wives, as small group leaders, house group leaders, as, minute, as, we, as we interact together as a community? What does it look like for us to love each other deeply as Christ loves the church? And are we really ready to put that on? Are we really ready for that kind of commitment to each other? Are we ready to, man, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of that story that never gets old, I'm willing to do it. Even at the cost of my family sometimes. Even at the cost of my personal comfort and convenience. Because Jesus was pretty rough on Peter. Peter was going, Jesus, there's an easy route. Just come, take your spot in uh, Jerusalem. We'll, we'll make a really nice throne. You know, let's not talk about that you're going to have to die. Let's give you an easy spot. And it sounded much like Jesus' temptation in the, in the uh, desert. It sounded a lot like that. An easy saviorhood. All you got to do is this. And Jesus says, uh-uh. Get behind me, Satan. Because the road that I will travel and the road that you will travel is a hard road. It's narrow. So I have no answers to what this means. And this is something that we all need to just, as we, as we leave, as we scatter again to our homes, as we go to Panera, as you have lunch with friends and do coffee and this is stuff that we wrestle with as a community. What does it look like for me to 
to commit to Jake Hookstra and just say, man, for the sake of the gospel, man, so that God receives more glory, I'm willing to do this for you. You're in a tough spot, man. Let's, let's be the Acts 2 church and give up much for the sake of the gospel. There's people that are hurting in our, in our midst. What is, how, do we, how do we love on Ed? How do we care for Ed deeply? What do we do? Are we willing to deeply sacrifice so that God gets more glory? And so the community is just in awe of what is going on here? Are we willing to do that? As mothers give birth to children, are we willing to commit deeply to each other in discipling these children and supporting these new, new families? And we just love the heck out of them and doing whatever it takes. Are we willing to be those kind of fathers? Because as we come to the communion table, this again is just a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture of what Christ is saying discipleship looks like. Followership. He's saying, listen, I came and I put on flesh. This is my body, which is broken for you broken for you. And in the context of this scripture, are we willing to be even broken in our midst for each other? He said, it's my body broken for you. Do this for me. This is a spiritual act of worship. As we come to the table, remembering His act, His sacrifice, personally and corporately. In the same way, He comes to that part in the meal and He says, listen, not just willing to come and put on flesh. But I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to be rejected. And I'm willing to shed my blood. So that the wrath of God is taken care of. So that now you can have life Life to its full. Because you're an adopted son and daughter of the king. Of this anointed one who came and shed his blood for you. The table that we share is, a, is an open table. It's an open table, though, for those who have confessed with their mouth 
and believe deeply in their heart. Greg, would you pull up the Romans 10? It's probably at the beginning. Meditate on this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. As we come to this table, as we partake, some of us need to spend some time in repenting. And maybe it's confessing to one another. the sin and the stuff, the, the gossip. Because that's, that's a, a tough thing in following Christ. He's calling us to a new life in Him. And we celebrate this as a picture of what life in Christ is about. So come, all things are ready.